Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Please open your Bibles. Uh, This morning I'm going to be speaking to you from John chapter 18. Your notes say verses 12 through 40. I got a little ambitious when I was planning your your notes, but we're only going to read through verse 27. So please open your Bibles to John chapter 18 and stand with me for the reading of Scripture to honor the Lord and His Word. This is what the Apostle John has recorded as guided and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Church, hear now the words of the one true and living God. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord, church. You may be seated. Well, I decided Friday night to break this message up into two. I was going back and forth and back and forth. Should I preach 12 through 40 or 12 through 27? And, you know, 12 through 40 fit really nicely together thematically. Um, It's just a natural progression. But I was a bit ambitious. And so after going forth, I went back. And this morning we're going to be doing verses 12 through 27. Um, I also think that there's just so much for us to mine out of Peter's denial. So we're going to camp out there a little bit this morning. 
So this morning we're going to cover only the first two points on your outline. Is that okay? Okay. But I want to draw your attention to the message, the title of this message, um, The Lonely King. The Lonely King. I chose that title because from this point forward uh, until Jesus breathes his last, Jesus is alone. And so we are now, as we have journeyed with Jesus um, from Palm Sunday um, onward, we are now stepping into his darkest hours um, as we walk with him through the remainder of chapter 18. Um, And what we are going to see through chapter 18 is that Jesus experiences wave after wave of rejection. And so as we think about the lonely king, we should be asking ourselves, what makes Jesus the lonely king in this dark hour? First, we see that his people reject him. Jesus is a lonely king because his people reject him. Now, uh, Matthew and Luke begin their gospel accounts with Jesus' birth. And Mark begins his gospel account with Jesus' baptism and Jesus kind of uh, beginning his public ministry. But John, John doesn't begin with Jesus' birth or his baptism. John goes all the way back to creation. He goes back to the foundations of the world. He even calls back to eternity past. And so I just want to briefly read to you how John opens his gospel because it bears upon this text. John opens his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him And without him was not anything made that was made. And him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skipping down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. So John opens up by telling us that Jesus is the eternal word. And that the the word has come into the world. The word has been made flesh. And he came to his people. And his own people did not receive him. And so Jesus, one of the very first things John says about Jesus is that that he, he has come. He's come to his people. But his people have rejected him. And nowhere is this rejection of Jesus by his people more clearly pictured for us than in the unfolding events of Good Friday, beginning with his trials before the Jewish leaders. And so here we are. We're in this text. Jared preached to us last weekend about Jesus' betrayal, right, in, in his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we've been on this journey from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday in John's gospel. And we saw several weeks ago in John 12, Jesus triumphantly entered into into Jerusalem, not so much as a conquering king, certainly as a king, but as as a humble king, as the true and better Passover lamb who is coming to present himself to be given for his people. And after his triumphal entry, we saw Jesus meet in the upper room with his disciples. And Pastor Andrew, he preached to us through the upper room discourse. And then we saw Jesus pray the high priestly prayer and and pray to his father in 
And we saw the priority of Jesus giving glory to his father. And last week we saw Jesus betrayed by Judas. And that brings us to this moment. As Jesus is about to be carried out of the garden. It's the middle of the night. In the early hours of Friday morning. Jesus is going to be interrogated by the Jewish high priests. Where he's going to be doubted by them. He's going to be suspected. He's going to be accused. He's going to be rejected. They're going to seek his death and they're eventually going to provoke the crowds to call for him to be crucified. So we begin to see this effect of cascading rejection beginning on this evening. So the transition from Jesus's arrest in Gethsemane to his trials inside Jerusalem begin verse 12. John says, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. We read this verse and we, we, we're tempted to feel sorry for Jesus. But remember what I just read to you from the beginning of John's gospel. Jesus is the word made flesh. He is the one by whom, through whom, for whom all things have been made. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power in his deity. He is the one who holds all things together. He is the word made flesh. He is the, he is the Lord of the universe, the Lord of all creation. He has allowed himself to be arrested and bound. He he, he is not a victim. Here we see Jesus, the mighty one, the amazing one, the one who has no other like him, being arrested and bound and going willingly. We see his humility. We see his submission. We see his strength. We see that he is in control. And this, this theme continues throughout verse or chapter 18. Look at verse 13. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So here's Jesus. I mean, he is the, he is the Lord of all creation. And he's bound. I mean, it's almost silly to think about. But he is led away. He's placed under arrest He's he's taken from the Garden of Gethsemane back into the city, into Jerusalem. And the first person that they bring Jesus to is this man named Annas. Now let me explain what's going on here. Uh, John tells us that Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas and that Caiaphas was the presiding um, high priest that year. Now we know a little bit about this man Annas from other references in scripture, but also from history. It turns out that Annas had previously served as high priest in Jerusalem from A.D. 6 to 15. Normally, the high priest served a lifetime appointment, but the Romans came and they interfered and they took him out of his post. They deposed Annas. Um, They removed him. But after they removed him, Annas was able to kind of get five of his sons installed to serve as high priest. And after that, evidently, he got his son-in-law... Uh, to serve as high priest also. And so, so uh, also in this text, don't be confused, because John refers to both Annas and Caiaphas as high priests. Um, he's not making a mistake. Just as we refer to past presidents as president so-and-so, like President Trump, President Obama, they referred to past high priests as high priest. But what I want us to see, what I want us to see is that this man Annas, like, he, he was behind the scenes. He had, he had had his sons installed, Um, He had his son-in-law installed. 
Um, he, he was a power broker. He, he, he could possibly have been one of the guys pulling the strings. Maybe uh, he was himself the mastermind behind the whole plot to arrest Jesus. Surely because the Romans had removed him and he had installed his sons, many people still viewed him as a de facto high priest. And John tells us that of all the people that they bring Jesus to first, they bring Jesus to Annas. Now, John in his gospel records Jesus being brought to Annas. And this is kind of like an informal pre-trial. They bring Jesus to Annas, so Annas, the powerful guy behind the scenes, can question Jesus. But then in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that Jesus is taken to Caiaphas, who is the official high priest of record, and also the Sanhedrin for more formal official questioning. So Jesus' trial in the middle of the night proceeds in two stages, informally before Annas, which John records, which we're going to look at, and then the other gospel accounts before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, which we're not going to get into this morning. But jumping ahead to verse 19, John tells us that the high priest, or Annas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So he questions Jesus. And we kind of just don't think much of this as modern readers. But what we need to see is that it was actually unlawful for Annas to interrogate Jesus this way. Jesus has been arrested. He's been bound. And now he is being questioned. Well, the Jewish law required a minimum of two or three witnesses to justify an arrest and an interrogation. Formal charges should have been brought against Jesus. But there's no due process here for Jesus. Annas doesn't present charges to him. Rather, he has Jesus arrested and bound and surreptitiously brought to him in the middle of the night, you know, uh, under the, the cover of darkness, so he can go on a fishing expedition and try to get Jesus to incriminate himself. But Jesus is not deterred. Jesus is not intimidated. Jesus knows that both the law and the truth are on his side. And so Jesus, you know, being the incomparable one, he turns the interrogation back around onto Annas. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And so Jesus takes a stand for truth and righteousness. Jesus is courageous. Jesus looks at abusive and corrupt power straight in the eye. He doesn't blink. Instead, he calmly and coolly tells Annas, hey, go find your witnesses. Do what's right according to the law. And how many of us know that sometimes the truth cuts, right? Corrupt power does not like to be confronted with the truth. And so when Jesus turns the tables and puts the interrogation back on Annas and calls him to account in his clever way, it provokes a response from one of the officers. Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Of course, there's tremendous irony in this moment. There's irony in this officer's statement. Is that how you answer the high priest as he strikes Jesus? Because Jesus, of course, is the true high priest in this situation. And now this man calling Jesus into question has struck the true high priest with his open hand. But again, look at Jesus. Jesus doesn't react. Jesus doesn't melt down. He doesn't lose it. He doesn't cower. He doesn't get intimidated. He doesn't wimp out. He looks evil in the eye and he speaks the truth. 
Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus is the Lord of all creation. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the word made flesh. He is the king of kings. He is the great I am. He is our great high priest. He is the true and better Passover lamb. And here he is slapped in the face. And look how he handles himself. But here, as he's slapped, as he's questioned, as he's suspected, as he's interrogated, as he's impugned, we begin to see the acceleration of his humiliation, which will unfold over the next number of hours. And in this moment, there is some sense in which Jesus is standing before Annas. As we step back and we think about the cosmic drama that's unfolding, what we see is really it's Annas who is standing before Jesus. And Annas will stand before Jesus again one day, will he not? And Annas is just a particle of dust compared to Jesus. His life is a passing breeze, just a vapor that's dispersing into the atmosphere. But in this moment, Jesus is alone. Judas has betrayed him. His disciples have abandoned him. As we'll see shortly, Peter is watching from a distance. It's dark out. It's cold. It's the middle of the night. Jesus is the lonely king. But he's also the steadfast king. He's also the faithful king. He doesn't buckle. He doesn't waver in his mission. And there's this profound irony in this scene where a high priest confronts Jesus, who is the great high priest. And a priest is a mediator between God and man. And we see Jesus, the perfect mediator. And what Jesus is doing in this very moment is he is progressing forward in his mission and he has his eyes fixed on Calvary and he is going to the cross. He knows what is ahead of him and he is doing that work as our great high priest to make the way between sinful people and a holy God. He is opening a way of access. He is being a mediator by going through this work. And here we have Annas, the high priest, the power broker, the one pulling the strings who is nothing compared to Jesus. Tremendous, tremendous comparison in this moment. Annas is an obstruction between God and his people, and Jesus is opening the way between God and his people. Annas is not seeking righteous legal proceedings. He's not after the truth. And the truth is standing right in front of him in human flesh. Jesus is the truth. And while Annas is not seeking righteous legal proceedings. Jesus is fulfilling righteous and legal proceedings. He, he is being put forward as our sacrifice. He is, being, he's, he is submitting himself as the payment for our sins that God's justice would be satisfied. And so here in this moment, we see Annas rejecting Jesus. And he is now going to send Jesus to Caiaphas. And Caiaphas will reject Jesus. And he will... He will commend Jesus to be uh, killed to the Sanhedrin and they will reject Jesus. And then in turn, they will hand Jesus over to the Romans and the Romans will try to hand them back. And they'll hand him. And then the people, the, the, the Jewish leaders will say to the people, no. And then their people are going to call him a crucifixion. We just see cascading rejection. 
So Jesus' hour has come. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. In this hour, his people reject him. But next, in this dark hour, his leader denies him. Jesus is the lonely king because his people reject him and also because his leader denies him. So we've looked at Jesus. Now let's look at Peter. Now before uh, we look at Peter, I just want to say that in in the text, John interweaves. um, He goes back and forth between the account of Jesus and Annas um, and Peter and his denials. And so John kind of begins with looking at Jesus, then he goes to Peter, and then he goes back to Jesus, and he goes back to Peter, he goes back and forth. And so it's kind of like, you know, as he's narrating this, the camera is going like here, and then here, and then back here, and then back. And I think the reason that John does that um, is because he wants to contrast Jesus with Peter. He wants to contrast um, the glory of Jesus uh, with the sinfulness of of Peter or the sinfulness of man. And so in this kind of interwoven account, we see that Jesus is questioned and Peter is questioned. But Jesus is faithful and Peter is faithless. Jesus is courageous. Peter is cowardly. Jesus remains sinless and obedient to his father. Peter sins grievously and is disobedient to Jesus. Jesus is acting for the benefit of others. Peter acts to preserve himself. So let's read through the account quickly of Peter's denial, starting in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Skipping down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. So we know, we're familiar with the account of Peter's denials. Uh, We know that Peter sinned when he denied his Lord, But I think that his denials were grievous sins for several reasons. First, because of disloyalty and unfaithfulness. Uh, Jesus called Peter. Peter was one of his closest disciples. He had been with Jesus throughout his ministry. He had witnessed his miracles. He had heard his teachings. He had seen all of Jesus' acts of love and compassion firsthand. And by denying his association with Jesus, Peter just flat out demonstrated disloyalty and unfaithfulness to his master, a master who had shown him nothing but great love and care. I think that Peter's denial of Jesus was grievous because uh, it was a contradiction of what Jesus taught him. Jesus taught his disciples the necessity 
of acknowledging him before others. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Peter was there in person to hear Jesus teach that. And his denial directly contradicted Jesus' teaching. But even more than these, when, the, when faced with the possibility of danger, although it doesn't seem like Peter was in a lot of danger in this situation, he had an inside track to get into the temple courtyard, he knew somebody, you know, he, I don't think he was in trouble for chopping the guy's ear off in the garden because Jesus healed it. So I don't think he was in a tremendous amount of danger, but when faced with even the possibility of danger, probably more the danger of just the shame of being associated with Jesus, he allowed his fear to override his faith. So instead of standing up for Jesus, instead of standing up for the truth, in Jesus' darkest hour, he chose a path of self-preservation. So I think Peter's sin is, is grievous. But I think that the, I think that the severity of his sin is also accentuated, it's highlighted, it's kind of underscored by a few observations. Just to state the obvious, Peter denied Jesus repeatedly. Uh, it would have been bad enough if he, had denied Pete, if he had denied Jesus once, right? But he denied Jesus three times. It's like you're reading the account and he does it and then he does it again and then he does it yet again. Three questions, three denials. And his denials are unambiguous. I mean, you know, sometimes I'll be talking to my kids and I'll call them on something. And like I'll ask them, hey, you know, where, where, where did that candy come from? Where did you get that candy? You know, and the answer they give me is kind of like ambiguous. They don't, don't exactly want to like own the truth. I think they can kind of like make it fuzzy kind of get around being called to account. Peter is just unambiguous here, right? Consider the clarity of his response. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? I am not. And again in verse 25, I am not. I mean, the, I think the force of this is kind of conveyed when you just abbreviate the questions that are asked to Peter and you contextualize his responses. You know, are you not one of his? I am not his. Do you not belong to him? I do not belong to him. And so Peter is clearly, unambiguously, unequivocally disassociating himself with his Lord. And I think that the, 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 the greatness of Peter's sin here is accentuated kind of by the smallness of the threat that is facing him. Um, he is being questioned by a servant girl, right? Um, then by some fireside observers who John is careful to tell us include more servants. And then third and finally by yet another servant. Like, guys, this is not Peter's night. This is not his finest hour. First, as Jared showed us last weekend, in the garden just a few hours earlier, he chops off some poor servant's ear Jesus has to clean up his mess. Like Jesus steps forward in the garden to protect his disciples, you know, from, from, from this band of soldiers. And then all of a sudden he's got to protect the soldiers from his clumsy disciple. And so, you know, first, first it's the servant in the garden. Now it's servants, 
you know, in the, the, the courtyard. It's not like Peter is looking down a Roman centurion. It's not like he's got a, a Roman spear pointed at his face. What Peter is really facing is simply the shame of being associated with Jesus in this moment. He's afraid of the negative opinions of others. He, he is afraid of the, not just afraid of the negative opinions of others, he's afraid of the negative opinions of others, like whose opinions don't really matter that much. Can you see that? And his sin is made worse by the timing of it. Like Peter denies Jesus when Jesus is alone. He denies Jesus when Jesus is, is being exploited. He denies Jesus most of all when Jesus has just begun to suffer to pay for Peter's sin. And while Jesus is beginning to suffer, Peter's off at a distance warming himself by a charcoal fire, not sharing in his Lord's sufferings. It's like the more you just kind of look at it, the more you hold it up and look at it, the more you realize like, oh man, this is pain. it's painful to, to watch Peter's failure is it's more heinous when we consider that he's not just one of the disciples. He's the leader. Jesus had an inner circle of three disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John. Peter was the leader of that privileged three. Peter was the leader of all the disciples. In all four gospel accounts, when, when Jesus' disciples are listed, Peter is always listed at the beginning of that list. Peter is the one who always is the spokesman for the disciples. When Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi and he asks them, who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's Peter who stands forward and, and gives a confession on behalf of all of the disciples. Who else besides Peter would have experienced great love and privilege from Jesus? And in this moment, to save himself a little bit of shame from some servants around a campfire, Jesus, uh, Peter, spurns his Lord. And so we read this account. We wonder, like, how does this happen? How does a guy like Peter fail this way? I think there's a number of clues along the way. First, I think that Peter failed because of pride. I think that Peter was overconfident in his commitment to Jesus and that Peter came to some point where he believed that he would never actually abandon or, or deny Jesus. Um, Matthew tells us that on that very night, just a few hours before, when Jesus predicted how the disciples would scatter, people, Peter zealously said to Jesus, I will never fall away. They may all fall away, I'll never fall away. And then when Jesus then responds to Peter by saying, well, actually, you're going to deny me three times, you know, Peter comes back at Jesus. Well, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. In John's gospel here that we've been in for the past number of weeks, just back in chapter 13, um, hours before, again, just hours before Peter's denials, Jesus, Peter uh, says to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. I mean, think about those three statements by Peter. Again, all of them, just hours earlier, that very night, I will never fall away. I will lay down my life for you. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. 
His overconfidence and his own faithfulness made him susceptible to failure. Friends, pride is the devil's most dangerous snare. Pride is the devil's most dangerous snare. The moment that we think that we have arrived spiritually is the moment right before we fall. Next, I think that Peter failed because of prayer, or rather a lack of it. Perhaps Peter denied Jesus three times because, again, just hours earlier, Peter fell asleep three times when he should have been praying with Jesus in Gethsemane. Mark records the account. Let me read it quickly. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Let me ask you a question. Do you think on that night that if Jesus needed to be praying, that maybe also Peter needed to be praying? I mean, if I'm hanging out with Jesus and I'm watching him pray like this and I'm thinking like, he is just like, he is praying. Maybe I should be praying too. But Peter was sleeping when he should have been praying. Third, Peter failed because of distance. Because of distance. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recount this important detail that when Jesus was arrested and bound in Gethsemane and they took him away and they took him to Annas, that Peter was following at a distance. Peter didn't stay close to Jesus. And he also didn't stay close to the other disciples. And by distancing himself from Jesus and distancing himself from the other disciples... Peter left himself spiritually vulnerable and isolated and primed to succumb to the temptation to deny Jesus. I think when we think about, you know, Peter following Jesus at a distance and separating himself from the rest of the disciples, I actually think that observation points to two, like, really foundational realities of the Christian life. Um, the Christian life can only be rightly lived close to Jesus. The Christian life can only be rightly lived close to Jesus. Way too many professing Christians today are following Jesus from a distance. Well, I'll just take a little bit of Jesus. I'll spend a little time with Jesus. I'll just read a little bit of Jesus' word. I'll walk with Jesus when it suits me. 
I'll follow Jesus when it's safe. Or it's just me and Jesus in private. Many of us make the mistake of thinking that we are safer when we follow Jesus from a distance. I don't want to be too Jesus-y. I don't want to be too radical. But the truth is the opposite, right? The truth is that we're always the safest when we're the closest to him. When Jesus called his disciples, when he said, he said to his disciples, follow me. He didn't say follow me from a distance. He said follow me. And he wanted them right next to him. And friends, when he calls us to be his disciples today, when he calls us to walk with him, when he calls us to the Christian life today, when he says follow me to us, it's no different for us. He doesn't call us to follow him from a distance. He doesn't call us to follow him kind of. He doesn't call us to follow him just a little bit. It's all or nothing. He calls us to be all in. He calls us to follow him all the way and in every way. Follow me. Follow in my footsteps. Peter failed because he did not remain close to Jesus. The Christian life, friends, can only be lived close to Jesus. But second, the Christian life can only be lived together. Um, I have a newsflash for us. The Christian life can only be lived in fellowship. We need each other. Amen? Um, You need other Christians. Like other Christians may be messy, you know, like unattractive this way or that way, or like, you know, rub you the wrong way, whatever. Like we need each other. I don't think the disciples got along all the time perfectly, but they needed each other. And when Peter peaced out, like he got himself into trouble. When, when Jesus got arrested, Peter thought he could fly solo. He thought he could lone ranger it. He thought he could handle things on his own. Peter went rogue. Can you see this? He went rogue. But here's the thing, friends. A rogue Christian is a self-destructing Christian. A rogue Christian is a self-destructing Christian. In fact, I'm going to take it a step further. A rogue Christian is a contradiction in terms because a Christian is someone who has not only been forgiven by God and cleansed by the Spirit, but someone who has also been adopted into his family and therefore given a new identity. And so when a Christian then tries to live free solo, untethered from God's family, like, oh, it's just me and Jesus, you know, is to actually live in denial of one's own identity. I am a son of God Most High. Jesus is you know, the firstborn among my brothers. Uh, I have brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, oh, but I'm just going to, you know, me and Jesus without my siblings. It's a contradiction in terms. It's a denial of your identity. And in this time that we're living in right now, in the time between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return, God's family is immediately realized. It finds its expression in the local church. In the local church. This is why the local church is important, friends. Um, God has created the local church to be the context in which we live together in this world as a family, not in isolation, but in community. That's why it's important, I would say imperative, to attend church faithfully, to come together, to encourage one another, to say hi to one another, to, to be connected, to cohere as a body, to hear God's word opened up and preached, to be reminded that our story is God's story, not the other way around to be encouraged and nourished and carried by his truth. It's important not just to attend church, it's important to be a member in the church. It's important to actually have a commitment with one another, a formal covenant that, hey, you know, this, this life that we're in, we're in it together. You know, and I covenant with you to be with you in this 
in this life and you covenant with me to be with me in this life and and I'm going to help you when you fall into sin and you're going to help me when I fall into sin and we're not going to let each other just wander off like Peter does on this night. Peter failed because he separated from his brothers. But fourth, Peter failed because of his company. There's a subtle contrast in verses 18 and 26. In verse 18, John tells us as he's narrating, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them. With them. Do you see those words? With them. Peter was with them, standing and warming himself. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, jumping down to verse 26 now. So now this is one of the servants uh, standing with Peter around that fire. Uh, A relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? With him. Okay. Do you see? Do you see? Peter was with them. And they're saying to him, we saw you with him. With them, with him. Do you see those two words? So the question we should be asking then is, well, Peter, which is it? Who are you really with? Are you with them or are you with him? Uh, It can only ever be one. Uh, There there is a clear line of demarcation in this life. There's a clear line of uh, a, a boundary. There's a line of demarcation in the Christian life. We are either with him or we are with the world. You, you can't straddle that line. If you try to straddle it, you're with them. You're either with Jesus or you're with the world. Who was Peter with when he failed? He wasn't with Jesus. He wasn't with Jesus' people. He had been with Jesus, but now Peter is with them. He's warming himself around a fire, in the courtyard of the high priest with Jesus' enemies. Peter failed because he was with the wrong crowd. Who are you with? It's a question we should all ask ourselves. Now, there's some sense in which being in the world is inescapable. We're not called to be just, you know, like to take ourselves out of society. That's not what the Bible teaches question is, are we of the world? All of us go to work. We have families and friends and various relational contexts and spheres where, you know, we interact with the world and people of the world. And that's, that's great. We're called to be salt and light in those contexts. But the question is, who are we really with? So Peter failed big time. Can you see that? His sin was public. It was personal, it was shameful, it was reprehensible. I mean, it was against Jesus immediately and personally, and Peter knew it. And while John, in his account here, doesn't record Peter's reaction to his sin after the rooster crowed, um, the other gospel writers do. Um, Luke tells us in Luke 22 that when the rooster crowed, that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus turned and looked at him. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. Likewise, Matthew says he went out and wept bitterly. Mark simply conveys that Peter broke down and wept. 
The rooster crowed. Jesus turned and looked at him through the courtyard, caught his eyes, and Peter was utterly cut to the heart. And I think that the intensity of Peter's pain in this moment is is highlighted by something that we read past uh, when we read these accounts. Um, When Peter denied Jesus the third time, the other gospel writers, Mark and Matthew in particular, record that that Peter actually invoked a curse on himself and he swore. Mark 14, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and he swore, I do not know this man of who you speak. I mean, Peter of all people would have known what Jesus taught about swearing oaths. And and Peter of all people would have expected God to visit that curse on him for denying his son. And so just imagine, here's Peter. He denies Jesus the third time. He's sworn an oath. He's invoked a curse on himself. The rooster crows. He remembers what Jesus has said to him, how Jesus predicted his denials. He turns, he looks at Jesus, and Jesus turns and looks at him. And and Peter is broken. He's undone. He He breaks down and he weeps. But here's the thing, what Peter didn't understand in that moment, what he wouldn't understand until later, even as he wept bitterly, was that the father was in a matter of hours going to visit Peter's curse on Jesus as his substitute. All four gospel accounts include the account of Peter's denials, and we've spent a long time on it this morning, and so I just kind of want to ask, why make so much of Peter's sin? Why spend so much time talking about this account? I think it's because it's only when we see the magnitude of our sin that we understand the majesty of God's love. When we see how great Peter's sin is, that's when we see how much greater Jesus is. Um, Jesus turns and looks at Peter in that moment. The rooster crows. Peter has sworn an oath. He's invoked a curse. He's denied Jesus three times. He's been a coward. He has been weak. He has been disobedient. He has been disloyal. He has been unfaithful. He has failed. He's been lame. And Jesus turns and looks at him, catches his eye. And you know what Jesus does not say to Peter in that moment? He does not say to Peter, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, though he would have been justified in doing so. Rather, Jesus doesn't say anything. But after looking at Peter as though acknowledging his sin, Jesus says nothing and he turns and he sets his face on the cross and he goes to Calvary and he's nailed to the cross and he bleeds and he dies and he drinks the cup of the Father's wrath and he pays for Peter's sin. And so Peter's denials teach us some important lessons about God's love. God's love is unconditional. Despite Peter's failure to stand by Jesus, Jesus' love for Peter did not waver. God's love for us isn't dependent on our ability to always remain faithful. His love is unconditional. His love is purchased by by the Son's perfect obedience. And so we can be confident that when we fail, God will not fail to love us. God's love is forgiving. Um, Jesus forgave Peter for his denials. We see this as we fast forward to John 21. Jesus is, is raised... He appears to the women and he appears to Peter first. 
of the disciples and forgives them and welcomes them back into fellowship. God's love is restorative. Peter could have been dismissed by God, could have been dismissed by Jesus, but Jesus restores Peter to a position of leadership and uses him foundationally in the early church. God's love is patient. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him, but he continued to invest time and energy into Peter. He still called Peter. He still chose Peter. He still invested in Peter. He still empowered Peter. He still used Peter. His love is patient. And God's love is understanding. Jesus, being both fully God and also fully man, understands our human weakness. He understands the temptations that we face. He has been tempted in every way, yet without sin. As our great high priest, he sympathizes with our weakness. And so, and so we can find comfort in the fact that God's love is a love that is understanding. And I just want to close by saying a few words about God's love for you. You know, maybe you're here today and, and you've been weighed down by the fact that in some way, in your own way, in your life, you have denied Jesus in some profound way at some point in your life. And maybe that is something that's always haunted you. It's a, it's a failure in your life that has, that has followed you. Or maybe you're here this morning and God has, in his providence, brought you. And, and at one point, you were following Jesus, but you denied him. And you haven't followed him since. And you've assumed that there's just no way back. And I would just ask all of you, could your denial of Jesus be bigger or worse than Peter's? I don't think so. And if Jesus was willing to forgive and receive and restore Peter, surely he's willing to forgive and receive and restore you. And so here, if you're here this morning, I want to encourage you to bring your failure to Jesus, to give it to him, to receive his love, to receive his forgiveness. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I want you to know that you can be forgiven of all your sins simply by putting your trust in his perfect, complete, finished work on the cross. You can be saved not on account of what you do to be saved. You can be saved on account of what he's done to save you. And so if you don't know Jesus this morning, I want to encourage you to cry out to him. I want to leave you with these words from the Apostle Paul as we close. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Jesus, we thank you for your work. We turn our attention now to remember and celebrate the great work that you did on the cross to secure for us the forgiveness of sins and the newness of life. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.